This morning, though, we're picking back up where we have been in the book of Acts. Now, we've been studying through Acts, like I said, through the majority of the year. Last week, we saw this incredible moment where the gospel came to the Gentiles. In other words, the people who were not Jews by descent could all of a sudden realize they could be just as much a part of the kingdom of God as the Jews, as God's special people that he had called and set apart when he called Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. Now, this morning, we're going to jump over chapter 11 because chapter 11, we talked a little bit about it. Some of it's just summary of where Peter had gone back and and reported back what God had done to the church there at Jerusalem and told them about how the Gentiles had gotten saved. And then a lot of what Luke records there in chapter 11 is setting the stage for what's going to happen in chapter 13 and beyond. That's going to have to do with the church at Antioch sending out Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, as they go out and start taking their first missionary journey. That's, by the way, why this is kind of a good break point for us, because we're going to finish up with Peter's story. He doesn't really factor prominently in the remainder of the book of Acts. So we're kind of getting through this section with Peter, and and before they jump in with Paul, we're going to go ahead and take the break point here, okay? So now, we're jumping over chapter 11, and we're going to jump into chapter 12. How many of you guys struggle with prayer? Anybody willing to admit that? Okay. Um, I know that it's hard for you to believe this since you've already seen me interrupt things at least once, but I have a little bit of ADD when it comes to prayer. Um, I'm one that I, I like to be active. I like to be involved in things. It's really hard for me just to sit down and focus in prayer. You know when it gets really, really hard? When that thing that I'm praying for seems unlikely. Like it's a prayer that I've prayed before and God didn't answer it, so I, I just don't want to keep praying that. Or even maybe when it gets impossible. There's just no human way that this could happen, this could work. There's just no way. That's when it gets really hard for me to pray. Is that the same for you guys? Well, here's my challenge to you, my encouragement this morning. As we look at what God does here in Acts chapter 12, we're going to see what happens when the church prays. Now, this will have impact for you as an individual in your own personal prayer life because the church won't be doing it if you're not doing it individually. But I want to encourage you that just like everything else we find in the New Testament, this is not stuff that's supposed to happen in isolation, just you by yourself. This is involving the church as a whole, gathering together, church members praying with other folks about what God's doing, trying to get stronger together and see God work. In fact, as we look through this, the main phrase that I want you to to think about is, is this idea. I want you to pray bigger than you believe. Okay? Pray bigger than you believe. Now, I'm not saying pray longer, you know, because Matthew 6, when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it's not all about being, you know, churchy words and repeating the same thing over and over again. I'm, I'm talking about the scope and the breadth of it. It's, it's not how fancy or how eloquent, but when you pray, do you pray for God to move in ways that seem unlikely and even impossible? Do you pray for God to move in ways that scare you? See, as a church, if we're going to see God do what I believe God can do, we've got to start praying or continue praying beyond what we believe. Now, I, some people are probably pushing back, saying, well, Sean, of course I believe that God is big, and I believe that God's you know, able to do everything and all. If we're really, really honest this morning, being fully transparent, I think a lot of us, when we're praying, myself included, pray kind of like the father that brought his little boy to Jesus. You remember this story? His little boy was demon-possessed, and he, he brought him to Jesus, and, and it talks about this in Mark chapter 9, that, that the, the dad said, if you can, will you make him well? If, if you're willing, Jesus, would you, would you do it? 
Here's Jesus' response to the man. If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that one of the most honest statements in the entire Bible? God, I I believe that you're big enough. I I believe you can do the impossible. God, I believe, but, but I don't know. Help my unbelief. See, this dad was honest. He was a man who was asking God to do something that he wasn't even completely sure that Jesus could or would do. So he's praying bigger than his belief. When I talk about the church praying bigger than we believe, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about praying prayers that you just, God may not even do this. I don't even know. this. If God did this, we wouldn't know what to do if God answered that prayer. Praying that way for yourself, for your family. See, here's the difference. We know in our head we can do that, but what if God doesn't? See, in our, our fear of disappointment, usually we pray things like this. God, be with my family today. Okay? Now, that's not wrong, necessarily. But how would you know if God answered that prayer? God, be with my church. Again, it's good, but it's kind of generic, isn't it? Kind of feels like the TV psychic who says, oh, I sense that someone here is having a struggle with their relationship. Is there someone here? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever watched one of these folks? They just keep it so vague that, that it makes it where anything could be true. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a fight with my wife right now. Oh, oh, I see. And, and this is probably something that's been going on for some time. Yeah, it's the same thing we fought about for years. How did you know? Because everybody fights with their wife about the same stuff they've been fighting about for years, right? That's just life. Sometimes I think we pray that generally, God, just be with my kids, be with my family. And if that's where you're at, that's fine. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to stop praying that way, but I do want you to start praying more specifically. God, would you give my, my children godly friends who will help them to be able to grow in likeness? Not just be with my family. God, would you help my kids when they're exposed to things that aren't pleasing to you? Would you help them to be convicted about what's true and what's real and what's right, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? God, would you, would you make those things true of my family? See, those are prayers that are specific enough you can see God answer it. God, would you call a young family out of our church to go take the gospel to the ends of the earth? God, would you, would you do something where, where in Christiansburg we have the ability to, to go into a low-income neighborhood and make a difference for the kingdom of God? God, would you open their doors and open our eyes to what that would look like? See, that's praying bigger than we believe sometimes. Praying scary big prayers. That's what the church did here in Acts 12. So let's, let's kind of read through the story and we'll come back and break it apart. Start with me in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 19, so it's a little bit of a long section, Okay. About that time, talking about after some of the things that transpired, again, we're like 10 or 11 years now into the the life of the church. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Guys, if you you underline anything in your Bible, this is a great one. This is God setting the stage for him to work in an amazing way. All right, verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. Guys, I didn't sleep good last night, and I don't have anything going on. Here Peter is likely facing his death. He's out cold. says something about the peace of God, doesn't it? 
while sent, he was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he didn't know what the, that what the angel did was really happening. But he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. The city went out, they went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. Now get this, guys. This is one of the funniest stories in the New Testament, if you pay attention to what's going on. Verse 13. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Like, guys, do you catch this? He's standing in the street knocking. He's a fugitive. And she's like, oh, oh, Peter's here! And she leaves him out there. Here's where it gets real fun, too. She gets back, verse 15, what do they say? You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Now, what was the church praying for? What were they praying for? Peter to be delivered, right? They were praying fervently. They were gathered in the middle of the night praying for this. What happened? Peter was delivered. What did they think? It's his ghost. Does this feel relatable to you guys? Peter, however, kept on knocking, verse 16, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the others, he said. By the way, that's a different James than the one that got killed earlier, okay? We'll talk about that in a second. And he left there and went out to another place. 18, at daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Isn't that a great understatement? I mean, you wake up to, for the changing of the guard, and it's like, oh, where did he go? After Herod had searched, he didn't find him. He interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, guys, this is one of my favorite stories because of how incredibly relatable the whole thing is. As we're applying this to our own lives, our families, and to praying together as a church, here's what I want you to see. We need to be praying in three different ways that we see out of this text. Number one, pray for God to do the unlikely. Pray for God to do the unlikely. Now, the church is praying for Peter to be delivered, but can we acknowledge that this seemed pretty unlikely? I mean, go back again to verses 1 and 2. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. Now, we don't know how long there was a gap between when James was arrested and when he got executed. It doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of time. But do you think the church was praying for James to be delivered? Imagine as soon as they heard about it, they prayed. Did God deliver James? No, he was executed. By the way, this is not the same King Herod that put the babies in Bethlehem to to death. This is actually his grandson. Um, His grandson, as he's here, uh, the Romans weren't super fond of this guy, so he always had to make sure that the Jews that he was leading were happy with him just in case things went sour with Rome. 
Apparently, they were getting annoyed with the growing group of Christians in Jerusalem. So when Herod arrested and executed James, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the main apostles, once they arrested and killed him, that made the Jews really happy because they were tired of the Christians being there, okay? Once Herod realized that the Jews liked him killing off Christian leaders, he says, well, then why don't I just go for the one at the top? Peter is one of the main leaders. He has been the spokesman for the church from day one, literally. So let's go for him. But then Passover happens, and he doesn't want to do anything during Passover. So now Peter's waiting in prison. Peter's put under Roman guard with different groups of four guards, each rotating through. One was chained to either side. There was probably one in front of the door outside of his cell, one in front of the door after that, and then there's the main iron gate. Can we just go ahead and say that that it's unlikely that this would happen? This is really a terrible spot to be in. There's an insane, murderous king from a long line of insane, murderous kings who's ready to make a public spectacle of you by having you tried and executed. There's where we get the tension in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Peter was in prison, but the church was praying. Now, can I be honest with you that I'd struggle with that? I mean, God didn't answer my prayers for James. Peter's been in prison for days. Herod's insane. I mean, in the truest sense of the word. Why, if God didn't answer it before, why is he going to do it now? Is that how you approach God when you pray? Maybe the reason you pray such safe prayers is because you don't want to be disappointed. What if God doesn't answer this time just like he did the last time? You're disappointed by the fact that he didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted to, so you're not going to ask him to do it again. Can I challenge you to honor God by praying prayers that you aren't sure he'll answer? That's what the church was doing here, right? They had no guarantee that God would deliver Peter. They'd already seen that James hadn't been. This is on the heels several years prior of Stephen's death. They had seen Christians be killed. They'd seen what the Romans do to these people. They, Jesus himself had even been killed, right? But they kept praying fervently. You know, I saw that firsthand Wednesday night. Our hearts are breaking for the situation in Afghanistan right now. There are Christians who are enduring persecution that causes me to not feel like I can hardly claim the title of Christian because my life is so easy compared to the things that they're enduring. That's not exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. You look around the world, you see this happening in Libya. You see it happening throughout the Middle East. You see it happening in China and other places where people are literally being thrown in prison, killed, their families being brutalized, losing everything for the sake of the gospel. Wednesday night as we were praying for Afghanistan, one of the folks in our church family that was there on the prayer meeting began praying for the members of the Taliban that God would let the testimony of these who are being martyred, who are being persecuted, break through to the hearts and the souls of the very men who are doing this. Isn't that what Jesus told us to pray? To pray for our enemies. In fact, the person praying that was honest enough to say, God, we don't even know how to pray for our enemies. But tonight we do. We pray for these men that you would break their hearts and that you would save them. 
That seems very unlikely, doesn't it? But you know what? God sometimes answers unlikely prayers, doesn't he? I was just reading in Matthew 27 about Jesus' crucifixion and after all of the massive signs took place after Jesus' death with the temple mount being or the, the temple veil being rent, the, the people coming back to life that it talks about, that all of those things that took place as signs at Jesus' death. Remember the centurion, one of the very guys who was in charge of crucifying Jesus? You remember what he said? Surely this man was a son of God. As he saw Christians, as he saw what Jesus had done, his heart may have been genuinely transformed as he recognized this was the Son of God who just died. Would to God that we would pray unlikely prayers. Even things as wild and crazy as the salvation of the Taliban. I mean, isn't that what we talked about last week? Did you spend any time this week praying for God to work in those people? like we talked about last week, whoever those people are, because the the gospel came to the Gentiles, which were those people, 1 Peter. Have you been praying that God would bring the gospel to those people that you've written off that seem like there's no way that they would ever get saved? People you've been sharing the gospel with for years? Are you praying for God to be unlikely, or are you giving up? Now, let me be clear here. This doesn't mean that we should pray for things that go against God's word, Okay? When we're talking about praying for God to do unlikely things, I'm not saying praying for things that go against God's word. Let me give you an example that you hear from time to time. If your marriage is in a tough spot, don't pray for God to give you a way out of it so you can be happy again. That isn't in line with what God says about marriage. So don't pray that way, okay? Pray for God to work. Pray for God to move. Now, again, if there's abuse, if there's things going on, you know what I'm saying here. Pray for God to work and do the unlikely. You know, we've known a couple, there was a couple at the church that Samantha and I met in who were divorced for seven years? I'm trying to remember, they taught in the young married department. Um, They'd been divorced for seven years before they got remarried again. God brought them back together. And at that time, they were teaching 20 and 30-year-old young marrieds about all that God had taught them during that season. Pray for God to work and do the unlikely. When you pray these, this way, you're honoring him by acknowledging that he's in charge and can do more than you could ever imagine. John Piper says a, a quote that I've shared with you before, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Maybe. Some days you're like, dude, I don't think I even know three right now. I got nothing. Listen, guys, God is doing 10,000 upon 10,000 things, and you, you may not see it yet, you may not know it yet, you may see God do incredible things, okay? But are you praying that he would? Are you praying for God to work in the most unlikely situations? The church didn't give up, and they didn't stop praying. Instead, they redoubled their efforts and prayed even harder. Did you notice, by the way, that they said that the church was praying fervently? How many of you guys, you guys ever know like those like sticky hands and like the sticky like kid things like octopus or like, you know, and you're supposed to throw it at the wall and watch it flip down. You know what I'm talking about? You guys ever seen those things? Is that how you guys treat your prayer life sometimes? Throw it to the ceiling and see if it sticks. I mean, I honest? All right, God, go for it. Flap. Yeah, it never comes down. That's right. They stick there forever. Sometimes you feel like that about your prayers, right? You're just throwing them to the ceiling and looking at them stuck. 
That's not the way that the church was praying. They were praying fervently. In fact, this word fervently is only used three times in the New Testament, and it's only used one other time to refer to prayer. You know when it was? It was when our Lord and Savior, on the night before he was crucified, went in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what he was getting ready to face. He separated himself from James, who just got killed. Peter and John goes away from them and begins praying. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The agony, the weight of what Jesus was under was such that it caused the capillaries in his sweat glands to burst. And so his sweat and his blood began to fall out because he was under that level of agony. That's the other time that this word fervently is used to describe prayer. So the church wasn't just throwing it at the ceiling. The church was agonizing in prayer. They were praying fervently. Now, They prayed bigger than they believed and knew that God could do it, as unlikely as it seemed. Now, as they get further into it, though, you see, we're not only praying for God to do the unlikely. We need to pray for God to do the impossible. Pray for God to do the impossible. Let's look again at the scenario here. There is absolutely no way that Peter can get out of prison. Okay, this is not escape from Alcatraz and he's got all kinds of time to make a shovel out of spoons or whatever it was that Clint Eastwood did to dig his way through the hole in the wall. There's no way he's getting out. He's surrounded by four Roman guards who would have traded out in three hour shifts overnight to make sure they stay alert. (laughs) Whoops. Except for the fact that, you know, it's interesting. Look again. The Bible never says that they were asleep. Peter was asleep, but it never says that the guards were. So suddenly an angel of the Lord, verse seven, or excuse me, um, verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Now, they maybe, maybe they were asleep. Maybe they weren't. Either way you cut it, these are trained Roman soldiers. You've got sentries at the door. So even if these dudes are asleep, the guy at the door is not supposed to be asleep, and the guy at the next door is not supposed to be asleep. And what does God do? He shows up in the middle of the cell through an angel. Angel shows up, and I love the way this goes. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell that doesn't wake up the guards or doesn't alert the guards because God's doing something miraculous here. The light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, get up, quick. All right, this is what I love. Read this from the perspective of, have any of you ever had to get a toddler up and going as soon as they wake up, okay? We, we decided this last Christmas when we were going down to visit my in-laws that we wanted to leave at 4 in the morning so we could get on the road and, and just get going, okay? If you have ever tried to get a toddler up and going as soon as they wake up, this is what it sounds like. Listen to the angel, okay? Here we go. Verse 7, so he says, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you, get your jacket. Come on, buddy. Let's go. Can you come on? We got we to gotta get going. We got to get on the road. So he went out and followed. He didn't know what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After the person that passed the first and second guards, he came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. I mean, look at this, guys. Like, use your imagination to picture this. Here's Peter, passed out between these two guards. Angel goes, hey, come on, man. It's time to get up. 
as he's like blinking because it's bright in there, you know, I mean, his eyes haven't even adjusted. He's got crusty stuff in his eyes, you know. And he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's like, hey, get your, get your clothes on. Come on. Get your shoes. Get your jacket. Come on. Let's go. All right, let's go. Come on. Let's keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about them. Come on. Let's go. Okay. And so then they get out the prison. They make it a block down the street. All of a sudden, the angel disappears. This is not, as I love the way that one commentator put it. Obviously, this was not Peter's escape. It was rather his deliverance. (laughs) Peter was totally passive throughout the entire incident, right? There is nothing that Peter did that made this better, okay? He was totally passive in this, and this was God through his angel delivering Peter out of prison. It's a beautiful picture of how God works and how useless we are sometimes. Back to the text. We're down to verse 13. So Peter comes to himself, verse 11. He says, well, now I know angels come. And so then he goes and tries to find them. He shows up at the door of the house. And and like I I was telling you when we read it before, just picture this in your mind. Middle of the night, which, by the way, villages are not as quiet as you think there would be. There's still some noise with animals and things like that. But it's not the same as having the train running through Depot Street or, like, running past the train depot every night, right? It's loud when somebody's standing at the door going... Okay? Now imagine, again, you're Peter. You just broke out of jail. You need to get somewhere safe, and you need to do it fast because you don't know how long it's going to be until those guys wake up or until they come to their senses and realize you're gone. So you're standing there, and you're knocking at the door. You're knocking at the door. You're knocking at the door. Finally, the servant girl that's in charge of the door comes up and says, hey, who is it? He's like, hey, it's Peter. And she's like, who? It's Peter. Oh my goodness, it's Peter! And she runs off and she tells everybody. And again, listen to how they responded in verse 17, or excuse me, verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. She kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Here was the deal. Back in those days, this is not a biblical teaching, but the Jews believed that as each person had their own angel, that when a person died, their angel could take their form for a little bit and show up as that person to their friends and family and say goodbye. So they think, essentially, this is Peter's ghost. What were they praying for God to do? Deliver Peter. What did God do? Delivered Peter. What did they think had happened? Peter had been killed. Does this not feel relatable to you guys? I'm serious. Like, think, this is us. This is how I pray. This is, you know, God, I want you to do this big thing. God, I want you to commission people to take the gospel. God, we want to see you turn Montgomery County upside down because of who you are and what you can do through your people. We want to see this take place. And then all of a sudden, God opens the door for you to do something. You're like, I wonder if that's God. You get a phone call or a text message from somebody that you've been praying for for years. And they're like, hey, I want to get coffee. What do you think God's doing? He may be even doing the impossible. Their reaction, they were, guys, they were praying fervently in the middle of the night. Like they lost sleep over this. Isn't it funny too, by the way, that while they were praying for him, losing sleep, Peter was out cold. <laughs> kind of a fun thing. They were praying bigger than they even believed. Because God did the impossible and they didn't think he could. Here's what's funny about this too. The church should have known that God could do this. Why? Well, if you remember all the way back when we looked at Acts chapter 5, verse 19, when the apostles were in prison, it says that an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison overnight. They had already seen God do this for Peter and John 
one other time. It was a few years back. But they'd seen God do the very thing that he did that night, and they still didn't believe it. Does that surprise you, or does it feel about right? You know beyond a shadow of a doubt in your head that Jesus can do the impossible. But when it comes down to it, at a foundational level, why not pray for God to do that? Go back to a verse that we've talked about often, but we talked about a few weeks ago again. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Leave that up there for a second, Brody. Don't go to the next one yet. He's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. What is the biggest dream you have for your family? The biggest dream that you have for this church? The biggest dream that you have for yourself as an individual, for your kids, for your nieces and nephews, for your roommates, for your classmates. God can do more than that. Now, hear me clearly. We're not talking prosperity gospel here. We're not saying that, you know, God's going to give you a you know, 5,500 square foot house and that God's going to give you 16 boats on the lake. And No. God can build his kingdom in bigger and better ways than you and I could ever begin to imagine. It says, go on to the next verse, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus all generations forever and ever. Now, to him be glory in the, the church. See, it wasn't just individuals who were praying for Peter to be delivered. It was the church praying fervently for Peter to be delivered. How does God get glory as he does more than we could ask or think? He does it through the church. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Again, now that it won't happen in the church if it's not happening in our lives individually, right? You know, remember the the whole thing about the whole this open the doors and see all the people. This is the church, not the steeple, right? This is the church. So if you're not praying bigger than you believe, not praying for God to do the unlikely or possibly even the impossible, then the church will never be praying that way because you're not doing it on your own. When's the last time you you grabbed somebody else from church to pray for them? I was privileged this morning to have one of our church family pull me aside and say, hey, Sean, has anybody prayed with you this morning yet? And we prayed together for God to work this morning in and through me. I need that. When's the last time you pulled somebody aside? When's the last time you called somebody that you know is one of our shut-ins who hasn't been able to come back, whether it's for COVID or because health issues have come up? When's the last time you called somebody and said, hey, I know that you must be discouraged because you haven't been able to get out. I love you. Can I pray for you right now? Can I pray that God would encourage you, even though that seems unlikely? That God might even heal you, even though that seems impossible? Now listen, James still died. God is still God, and he answers prayer the way that he answers prayer, but he does it through his people, as his people pray big prayers. Sometimes God answers them the way that we want him to. Sometimes he doesn't. But are we honoring God with the size of our requests? I mean, like, seriously, how big a God would it take to answer every request you prayed for this week? Would he have to be just a little bit better than you, a little bit smarter than you? Or would he have to be the true, one true God who is the God that does the impossible? The God who can do anything that he needs to do. 
And see, with that then, as we're praying for God to do the unlikely and praying for God to do the impossible, I'm going to skip that next quote and just jump down to the last point. I want to hit this briefly. The third thing we're going to do is pray for God to work it all out. I was trying to find a good way to, to say that, and, and I couldn't find a, a good wordsmithy kind of way for it. Here's what I mean by that. Let's, let's quickly read down what happens here to Herod. Go down to verse 20. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because the king was supplied with, uh, because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. Okay, don't really need to know all that means right now, so if that's all confusing, don't worry. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. Here's where it gets interesting. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man! At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Verse 24, But the word of God flourished and multiplied. Now, what does that have to do with what we've been saying? Well, James did get killed, didn't he? James truly did die, John's brother. By the way, the James that it's talking about in, uh, down in verse 17, when Peter says, tell James and the other apostles, as Peter's getting ready to leave Jerusalem, it looks like, for good probably at this point, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is that James, not James, the brother of John that got killed. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, takes over the Jerusalem church from this point forward as Peter starts going out into different regions. As he goes, though, what happens with Herod? God ends up killing Herod. He dies because he won't give glory to God. He contracts a disease. God causes some kind of something to happen to him, and the man is dead. Now, to our American sensibilities, sometimes that seems offensive to think that God might be responsible for someone's death. But wouldn't you imagine that that's what should happen to a person who puts Christians to death because they're Christians? Would God be just if he didn't have some way of bringing this all around? See, that's what we're seeing here. Yes, God delivered Peter as the church prayed for the unlikely and the impossible. But at the same time, Herod was still king and it still could have happened again until we see that God in his end game, God knew where he was going with this and Herod would be eventually killed right? What does that teach us? It reminds us that that thing that you're praying for, the thing that you've prayed for before that God hasn't answered, the thing that seems unlikely, the thing that seems impossible, the thing that's scary, even if God doesn't answer your prayer right away like you want him to, God still knows what he's doing. Okay, here's where I, I, one of my favorite verses that talks about that. Isaiah chapter 46. God's talking to his people. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10, he says this. Remember what happened long ago, talking about Israel's history and all that he had done. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end of a thing from the beginning. And from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place, I will do all my will. Have you ever sat with somebody who has seen a movie before? And as you're watching it, they ruin it. Or maybe somebody that, that is familiar with that genre enough to sit there and say, oh, yeah, that guy's going to die. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, no, man, he's like one of the main characters. Oh, yep, he's, yep, sure enough, he dies. Okay. God is infinitely more that way. 
all of human history, every event that's taking place, God says, I can tell you exactly how it's going to go before any of it starts. So that's what we see with Herod, right? Yes, Herod puts James to death. But at the same time, as they're praying for Peter, the the church prays more fervently and trusts God more deeply than they ever had. Then we have this miraculous deliverance where we're reminded of the power of God. And we ultimately then get to see that the gospel comes full circle. We see Herod being put to death because of his refusal to acknowledge and give glory to God. And then what what happens in verse 24? But the word of God flourished and multiplied. God kept marching on. His kingdom continued without interruption or disruption. Why? Because he declares the end of a thing from the beginning. He knows how it's going to work out. Well, then why do we pray? Because God's told us to. There's mysteries about the sovereignty of God that I can't rectify for you, especially not with the remaining time that we have this morning. But I will tell you that God has clearly articulated in his word that he can declare the end of a thing from the beginning. He knows how it's going to play out. At the same time, he has also clearly articulated over and over again in his word that he works as his people pray. So what are we doing? We're going to pray that God can do the impossible. How do I know that God can do the impossible? Because he already has. Because see, here's the thing. The Bible says that every single one of us is born spiritually dead. We're all separated from God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible talks about. That's the the things that we do wrong. Every single one of us is dead. I have no ability to get right with God on my own. But God in his love, in his mercy, in his grace was willing to take my sin upon himself and die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that I could have new life. For God to make me spiritually alive by removing my sin and giving me Christ's life in its place, by raising Jesus from the dead, all of that's impossible, guys. Yet God did it for me when he drew me to himself as a nine-year-old boy. God's done it for many in this room. But if you're here this morning and you've never come into that relationship with Christ, I want you to hear clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the thing that you need God to do for you first. You need God to draw you into a relationship with Him. You need to surrender to Him. Seek His forgiveness. And watch Him do the impossible as He makes you alive spiritually. So if you're here this morning and, and you've never done that, I want to encourage you in just a minute We're going to have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Morgan's going to be playing and singing a song that's a new one to us. We're going to let her just sing it this morning. We're not going to sing along with her. But as she does, if you want to talk to me about what it would look like to trust Jesus, to follow him, to to stop trying to do life your way and put your life in Jesus' control, if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk with you after the service. So you come down while Morgan's playing and singing, while we've got this time of response, you come down and talk to me. If you're here, though, this morning and you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, are you praying like he really can do the unlikely and the impossible and that he's got a plan to work it all out? Or have you stopped because he didn't answer it last time? What's that look like for you, for your family? What's that look like for you and your church? See, when the church prays bigger than what we believe, we can see God do the impossible. Restoring marriages, saving lives, transforming communities. We've got to get serious about it and pray. So let's do that now. Go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes.
What's something that you've been too scared to pray? Because you're, it'll hurt too much if you're disappointed. Acknowledging the sovereignty of God and the way that he works and that, that he's ultimately in charge. Why not ask him to do that thing? To save that adult child that you know is not walking with you. With your head bowed and your eyes closed this morning, what do you need to pray about that's bigger than what you even believe you could do, if you're honest? I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to let Morgan sing and play a little bit. And you just respond and do business with God as he leads. Father, you can do the impossible. You've done it because you've saved me. You've done it because you delivered Peter. You've done it because you've shown over and over again that you are bigger, you're stronger, you're smarter, you're more than we could ever be. So God, would you help us as your church to pray for you to move and do what we can't? Help us to pray bigger than we believe even right now, for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for our community, for our world. If there's anybody who's here this morning or anybody who's watching us online who has not yet put their trust in you, would you draw them to yourself right now? Save them. Make them alive the way that only you can. And we'll give you the glory for what you do. So, Father, as we give you our life again today, we know that it may be painful to be tried by fire. We know that the unlikely and the impossible, if you're going to allow us to be a part of it, may be uncomfortable, may be hard, and may be scary. So, God, we thank you that we're not going through this alone. You're the God who's walked with us every step of the way. Our heart is to see you exalted, changed, to be able to do more than than we could ever imagine. We thank you that you're awesome (laughs) in the truest sense of the word. So God, be with us. Help us to pray for the unlikely, the impossible, for your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray.